Hey guys, so as you're about to listen to this podcast interview with Christopher Lockhead, uh, just want to caution you just in case you're doing so around your kids or anyone who may be offended by this. It contains a couple expletives, you know, a couple swear words, F-bombs. So just to caution you uh, that if you are planning to listen to this or watch this interview, uh, to keep that in mind as you go through it and to not listen to it or watch it around kids. All right. Thanks, guys. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, depending on where you are, what time you are listening to this. My name is Winston and I am super excited. And in case you're wondering, it's because, well, first of all, this is the season finale, but also we have the man, the myth, the legendary in our midst. I'm so excited that he decided to to come on and share his insights with us, Mr. Christopher Lockheed, Mr. Category Pirate himself, the legendary. How are you doing, Christopher? I'm great. Thank you for that kind introduction, Winston. I am super stoked to be here. I'm super stoked to kind of uh, see you in person. I appreciate your work very much, and uh, thank you for having me. Oh, definitely. I mean, Christopher, I, I know you need no introduction. I mean, anyone who even visits linkedin periodically knows who you are but just just to to really help people understand how much of a legend you are and throughout this conversation guys you'll probably hear me refer to christopher as such because i truly believe this um because i consume a lot of his content so you know it's very insightful but christopher you you've actually held several positions as director of sales president executive vice president you have also held CMO positions at both Scient and Mercury Interactive, CEO and founder of several companies, board member and advisor to other companies. You have also co-authored Play Bigger and Niche Down, and currently you are the co-creator of Category Pirates, which also has its own podcast, which I listened to um, a couple episodes um your own uh newsletter that that i'm also subscribed to as well i think the 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 platform that uses substack if i'm not mistaken and also you have a book series that's available on amazon as well now christopher just just share with us your story like where you started all the way up to where you are right now well winston uh i like many entrepreneurs um started with nothing uh, so I got thrown out of school at 18. I didn't graduate. And uh, I come from what most people would uh, politely describe as a modest background. I'm the product of a single mother and a very hardworking single mother. And I had a newspaper route back in the day when those were things and, you know, kind of had to work my way up. And so at 18 years old, Winston, I found myself in a place where I had no money, no relationships. I'd been thrown out of school, working a manual labor job. Uh, trying to figure out what I would do with my life. And so um, I was working as an orderly in a hospital. My mom had gotten me a job there because she worked at a hospital. So after I got thrown out of school, I found myself having this choice. And um, 
Choice number one is I could shave guys' balls for a living. And choice number two is I could start a company. So I started a company with my friend Jack with no money, no relationships, no experience, no nothing. And it was the beginning of the PC boom. Uh, the personal right. computer was taking off. And uh, we saw an opportunity and, and we went for it. And so, uh, and then subsequent to that, I start, as you said, I've started a bunch of companies, sold a bunch of companies, became uh, chief marketing officer of three sizable Silicon Valley companies. And the last one uh, we sold for uh, about $5 billion to HP. So that's in a nutshell, the journey, but, but here's the, here's the aha for me like a lot of entrepreneurs entrepreneurship was not a way up in the world it was a way out and um you know we hear a lot today about in the tech world of you know a couple geniuses go to stanford and raise a bunch of money and do all that stuff and i i work with a lot of those kinds of entrepreneurs and and god bless them a lot of them do incredible things however the vast majority of entrepreneurs are more I think in the, um, uh, this is my only way this is like, it's either this or I'm fucked. So yeah. I'm going to be an entrepreneur because I want to, you know, I don't know if you heard this from your mother, but you know, you got to make something of yourself, right? Right. Well, the only way nobody was going to hire me other than for a manual labor job. So the only way I could make something for myself was to become an entrepreneur. And, and there's a, that's the other aha here, which is some people, if you look at this, our system, our education system, the way companies are organized, et cetera, et cetera, there's this undisclosed paradigm that says what you're doing as a young person coming up is you're trying to find your place in the world. You're trying to fit in. And if you always wanted to be a veterinarian or a nurse or a painter or whatever you wanted to be, then you you find that thing and you go for it. And that's great. And I have lots of friends that way, and I'm sure you do as well. And some of them are incredibly successful and God bless them. However, there are many of us for whom there is no place. And it's a horrifying thing as a young person when, when you realize there's no place for me. And so then you're confronted with, I have to make my place in the world if i'm going to succeed otherwise i could be a very horrible failure and you know end up on the wrong side of the tracks or you know whatever however you might end up and so this idea of making your place in the world this idea of of entrepreneurship being a way out of a life of struggle to a whole other kind of a life uh, i think this is true for many many entrepreneurs um and it's certainly my story yeah and uh I'm I'm glad that you you kind of took that direction. To be honest, I wasn't expecting um for you to focus so much on the entrepreneur side of your journey. Um, but I'm glad you did, and here's why. So the whole premise of this podcast is educating marketers on how to prove their value at a C-suite level, right? And one of the things that you said is that entrepreneurship was kind of a way out for you. So you didn't have a choice and you had to become very successful at it. Do you do you find that, or should I say, do you believe that there's actual value in marketers today, actually developing that very entrepreneurial mindset in terms of how they go about executing their role within companies? A thousand percent, Winston. Every legendary marketer 
is an entrepreneur, even if she never starts her own company. And the reason I say that is legendary marketers are category designers. And a category designer creates different futures. At a very high level, my friend Mike Maples, the legendary venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley, says this. There's two kinds of people in business. Those who think the future will be a continuation of the past and those who think the future will be different. And the people who make the biggest impact, who make the biggest contribution to the world and make the most money are the ones that create exponential different futures. They design the categories of the future. That's why you and I know who Elon Musk is, and we don't know who the CEO of IBM is. All right. I, I literally, I don't know who that fucking is. And IBM is an important company, but IBM is irrelevant as it relates to designing the categories of the future. They're not right. creating new futures. So my point is, most marketers fall into the trap, Winston, of competing for existing demand. And what they don't realize is everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Said in a different way, you can spend your entire career as a marketer fighting for demand that was created, that was designed by somebody else, or you can create that demand. You can create that category. And what we've discovered, we did a whole series of primary research on this, and we published it in the Harvard Business Review for our first book, um, that in, in the tech world, one company earns 76% of the total value created in the category. And the company that designs the category is best positioned to dominate it and earn that 76%. Everyone else that are chasing the demand that's created by that legendary category designer, they're like rats on the Titanic. <laughs> and so the most legendary uh, marketers understand that it's one thing to compete for demand. It's a whole other thing to be the creator of that demand. And once you have that skill, that category design skill, once you become a category designer, you now are practicing the most single valuable skill in business, which is the ability to create different futures, create markets that did not exist. What people in marketing fail to uh, acknowledge is there must be a market if you're going to do marketing. Well, somebody created that market, right? The, sub, the sum total of demand for baseball caps with a fastener on the back of it, like you're currently wearing before they were created, was zero. And now right. that's a hundred million dollar plus category or more. And this is the part that most people don't understand, right? Before Airbnb, the sum total of the market for um, renting out your house was fucking zero. And they're the most valuable hospitality company on the planet. Uh, this, there was no category for shapewear until Sarah Blakely creates Spanx. And she refuses to be compared to a girdle or a bra or any of the other uh, existing 
uh, things, categories in the mega category called undergarments. She says, no, 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 no. This is an invention. <laughs> and if you read her Wikipedia page today, it says she's an inventor. She invented a new category of undergarment called shapewear, category name, brand, Spanx. What she didn't do is compete with girdles. Because if she'd done what most marketers, most entrepreneurs do, they would have come out and they would have said, my girdle's better than their girdle. But right. Sarah said, shapewear is different. And that's why the most legendary marketers are entrepreneurs because they're category designers. They're the ones who create the categories, create the markets of the future. There are so many things I want to unpack from what you just said. Um, I think the first one I'll start with is that that statistic that you just gave about 76%. Um, sorry, the, the, the company or the brand that creates that category I guess, in terms of market share, I'm assuming that that's what the 76% is. Um, that's a pretty it's good... Not, it's not market share. Uh, this is an important distinction, Winston. So uh, the, a lot has been studied about market share, and typically the category designer gets a disproportionate amount of market share. That is absolutely true. What we wanted to understand was how much value goes to the category leader. Value is measured by the value of the companies in the space. So for private companies, it's what they're worth, right? The valuation of the company. For public companies, it's their market cap. But regardless, each company is worth something. So you have your revenue, you have your profits, and then you have the company value overall, which if you're a high growth kind of company, tends to be a multiple of revenue and or profits. And so what legendary marketers, what legendary entrepreneurs and category designers do is they increase the value of their company over time. Well, guess what? The number one determiner, determination around value for companies is how big and valuable and how much is it growing the category. And so what happened, what we studied and published in HBR, published in Play Bigger, published in Category Pirates, uh, and we recently did an update to this, and all the data holds true, it is a uh, an absolute, that one company gets a essentially two-thirds of the total value of all the companies in the category. And this is the biggest unlock. We've all been taught to compete. If you go on Amazon, there's roughly 50,000 marketing books. And I haven't read all of them and neither of my partners, but we've read most of the important ones. And with very few exceptions, they all start with the same thing. There's an existing market and your job is to compete. Well, guess what? Nobody legendary ever did that. Where I'm on, by the way, thank you for that distinction because yes, the market share is, would be different than the, the valuation of the company. So let's say you have a marketing leader within a company right now because it sounds like that's that's a pretty good business case to make as to why a marketer within a company should be you know doing cat or, or should i say the company itself should be doing category design what happens when you have a company that's kind of stuck in the this is the way we've always done things where we're okay because i've met many companies like that even as potential clients where 
you may approach them with an idea to say, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? And I said, mm, no, we're good. Um, you know, things are great for us right now. You know, we're pretty happy with our growth. But let's say a marketer actually wants to make the business case for change to have that level of impact within their category. Um, what do you recommend that they, they do to go about making that business case and, you know, being able to influence that change from the, this is the way we've always done things? Awesome question. It is the delta between competing and creating. So one of my favorite musicians of all time, of course, is Bob Marley. <laughs> so here's the interesting thing about Bob Marley. Bob Marley was not competing with Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, category king of hard rock. Bob Marley, category king of reggae. And what Bob Marley is doing is he's bringing reggae to the world. He's a missionary. He believes in his country. He believes in the music. And he finds a way to be the first mega breakout artist to, 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 to get reggae to, to tip worldwide. And now reggae is listened to everywhere in the world. Uh, Matis Yahoo. <laughs> I love this. Matis Yahoo. Do you know who this guy is? He's an Orthodox Jew from Israel who sings reggae. And he's great. Well, Matis <laughs> Yahoo ain't singing reggae unless Bob breaks out. And because Bob's a category designer, he's bringing, he's not just making music and he's not trying to outsell Elton John. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's evangelizing his culture and his music and he does it so incredibly. And of course the music is great. So category product, the music itself, right? He becomes the category designer who brings reggae to the rest of the world. And so that's the difference, the difference between competing and creating, the difference between being a missionary who wants to change the future. Marley says, I want to bring reggae to the world. This is important music. I want to bring, you know, listen, one of my other favorite bands, The Clash. Well, The Clash are the first punk band to fuse reggae. And if you listen to Sting today, he will tell you no clash, no police. And he will also tell you no Bob Marley, no clash. Right. And this is how this these things develop over time. New categories create new categories. But the, right. impo the important thing here is the difference between competing versus creating. And when you move into the creation space, you create your own category you're out of the comparison game. Nobody compares Bob Marley to Led Zeppelin. You've never read an article called Who's Better, Bob Marley or Led Zeppelin? You're never going to read that article. Why? Because the whole world would agree what they do is different. Right. Now, that's a perception. The reality is what they do is the same. They play electric guitars, electric basses. They sing into microphones. They bang on drums. So you could argue factually, no, no, that's fucking bullshit. They do the same thing. But then everybody would say, well, no, it's a different category of music. Ah, so the way you listen to Bob is actually different than the way you listen to Led Zeppelin. 
And that's because we accept reggae and hard rock are two types of, aka categories, aka genres of music. And you're forcing a choice, not a comparison. So you're, you're not saying, oh, well, is Led Zeppelin better than Black Sabbath? Well, people have that debate all the time. But nobody says, is Bob Marley better than Led Zeppelin? And if you're in the mood for reggae, you're probably not in the mood for hard rock. I right. listen to reggae music on my Pandora when I'm in a different mind space than I do when I listen to hard rock on my Pandora or Spotify. And, and so legendary category designers force a choice, not a comparison. Am I in a reggae mood or am I in a hard rock mood? Am I in a hip hop mood? Am I in a classical mood? I love all music. Uh, and I listen to almost every genre with, with a few exceptions. And it just depends on what you're feeling like, or maybe at a party you have. Anyway, you understand my point. And right. this is the mistake that most marketers make, which is they fall into a comparison gap. And if Bob Marley had played the comparison game, I would assert to you, reggae wouldn't be the amazing, multifaceted, global um, category of music that it is today. Uh, that's that's a pretty good analogy i i believe how 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 can we bring this down now to a more grounded level i'm i'm sure you have some steps some processes some principles that you can share with us as to how to go about you know getting into the or not getting into the competing game i should say and creating a category so here i'll tell you one of my favorite stories of late uh one of my favorite uh digital entrepreneurs is an American gal whose name is Joanne Molinaro. But she's famous for being, quote unquote, the Korean vegan. Here's what happens. Joanne, very smart person, successful person, marries another smart, successful person, Italian dude named Molinaro. I forget his first name. She'll have to excuse me. She's a successful lawyer. Well, her husband's a vegan and she's not. She grew up Korean, Korean barbecue, et cetera, et cetera. So she decides she's going to try being a vegan to kind of get on board with her husband. Well, then she goes to try to create the foods that she loves, her cultural food. And she discovers like, what the fuck? There's no, there's almost no vegan food. So she starts experimenting in her kitchen. She's an analytical person. She's always loved cooking, blah, 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 blah. She starts creating recipes. She figures out things to do, alternatives, this and that and the other. And she try, she blends vegan, modern ve vegan with uh, cultural, a traditional. Anyway, she starts sharing the shit online. And she starts becoming a teacher online. And she's also a, a, a photograph kind of photographer. So she takes beautiful photos and videos. Well, guess what? She starts exploding online by sharing for free in the digital world her ideas around vegan Korean cooking. And she calls herself the Korean vegan. Well, uh, about a year ago, she quits her high paying job as a big ding dong lawyer, I think in Chicago, if I'm remembering right, Winston. And she goes full time as a digital creator, as a digital educator, being the Korean vegan. And when she came on my podcast and told me this story, one of the things she said was, as she was afraid to make this leap, she was talking to one of her friends, should I do it? Da, 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 da. She trained her whole life to fit in, but she really wanted to stand out. Right. And her friend says to her, 
You know, there's a lot of people who can be a great corporate lawyer. You're the only person in the world who can be the Korean vegan. And that's the unlock. She creates a category, a niche of one. And she doesn't build a brand. She evangelizes Korean vegan cooking. Well, guess what happens over time? Koreans glom onto it. Vegans glom onto it. And now I am neither Korean, which you can tell, and I'm not the vegan. And I can't wait for her next recipe to come out or her next video to come out. And lots of people who aren't Korean and aren't vegan love to consume her content because they enjoy what she's doing with food. And so my point is the following. Now more than ever, because of the digital world, we have an opportunity to radically differentiate ourselves around an idea, a problem that we care deeply, deeply about. And because the internet scales the way that it does, you can be living in Jamaica. I can be living here in Santa Cruz, California. We have an affinity for doing legendary marketing. Uh, we're just getting to know each other, but we've met each other on LinkedIn. We know we, we love these ideas around how to do breakthrough marketing that really makes a difference and changes the future. And we now want to have this conversation. You and I have developed this relationship. That's what happens at scale. And so every entrepreneur has the opportunity, even a single person like Joanne, to figure out a way to do something radically unique that's radically valuable. And because the internet can scale, you're not time bound by how many Korean vegans there might be on Jamaica. <laughs> there might be very few on Jamaica, but if, if Joanne <laughs> happened to live there, it wouldn't matter. And the fact that you live there doesn't matter because your marketing advice is valuable here in Silicon Valley. It doesn't matter where you are. And so this is the big unlock, which is everybody, every business has the opportunity to create a unique position, a unique category for themselves, solving a unique problem around a unique set of ideas. And with the internet, they can scale in a way that the the physical world, the analog world would never have allowed. All right, Christopher. So you, you made a good point around that. One of the things you mentioned, which I'm glad you did, is around differentiation. And I read an article by by you guys, the category pirates, where you guys talk about the eight levels, um, the eight category levels, I, th I think it what it's called. Um, and that's around differentiation, right? The eight different ways that you can differentiate your company, your, your product, and so on. First of all, share with us what those eight are. And then also, how, how could marketers take, or should I say, which one should they start with? They want to get buying at the C-suite level. They want to do this whole thing of category design. But they need to start with at least one because, you know, resources aren't that much. Which would you recommend they start with? So the best place to start thinking about how do I design my own category is what problem do we solve? And essentially, there's two kinds of problems. There is a known existing problem that gets meaningfully reimagined. Typically, because of some sort of a breakthrough. So, for example... Uh, personal transportation was a problem that was solved. There's automobiles, there's buses, there's taxis, there's subways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Travis Kalanick, founder of Uber, is standing in the rain one day in Paris trying to get a taxi. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get a Paris taxi in the rain, but it's impossible. <laughs> and he's got his iPhone. He says, how come I can't press a button on this fucking phone and have somebody come get me? 
So he reimagines the personal transportation problem in a new context. Bam. The category of ride sharing exists, Uber and Lyft, out of nothing. And in the beginning, they're not competing with taxis. They don't say we're better than taxis. They say we're different. And of course, taxis today are a declining business, rapidly declining business. So that's a known problem reimagined with a new breakthrough solution. Here's an unknown problem. In the mid-1990s, nobody ever asked the question, how do I wash my hands in the absence of water? Nobody had ever asked that question. There's a company called Gojo Industries. And Gojo Industries, founded by a husband and wife almost 100 years ago, were the first company to create liquid soap because the wife thought it was disgusting to put hand soap in her hand. She worked in a factory with a bunch of disgusting men and she didn't want their disgusting hand soap in her hand. She's like, I want the soap, but I don't want to touch this disgusting bar. So they create a new category called hand soap. So decades and decades go by, Winston. They're still asking the question. And then they tilt the question and they ask a question nobody had ever asked before. And then the solution becomes Purell hand sanitizer uh, and now most parents bathe their little loved ones in the stuff all the time and of course uh, when the pandemic takes off they can't make enough of the stuff and so the problem called how do i wash my hands when they don't have water was a problem no one else ever thought about never mind tried to solve and so for for marketers asking the question what's the problem and ask it deeply and ask why it's a problem five to seven times. Go deep on it. And when you begin to understand what is the problem you solve and you see that you're either solving an existing problem in a brand new way or a whole new problem nobody ever thought of, that's the genesis of creating a radical new category that leads to radical differentiation because we all know who Purell is. Do you know who the number two hand sanitizer brand is? No. Exactly. <laughs> Christopher, that, that was that was a brilliant explanation and I love it. And here's why. Because I'm I consider myself that type of person. I'm always thinking through the problem. Like how can I how can I unlock this? And I, I think this is a personal question for me, really. But let's say you know that problem. You're you're thinking about it, you're thinking, well, how do I actually think about this problem differently? How do I come up with either a new solution or a familiar solution but to a new problem um how 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 can people really think through this like is, is there some sort of probably process that you have steps that they can take um you know probably sitting out in the cool shade in an armchair with a cool beer <laughs> i don't know what's what's, what's your what's your How about a red stripe <laughs> okay so here's what you do so spend a bunch of time talking about, thinking about, asking why, asking why, asking why. Well, why is that a problem? Okay, well, da 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 da, -da. Well, why is that a problem? Da -da 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 -da. Uh, in management techniques, you we often get taught, ask why five to seven times to do what people call, quote unquote, root cause analysis. Okay, so now let's say we get our, our arms around the problem and we think we are beginning to truly understand. We've asked why five to seven times. We've written out a lot about the problem. Now, Ask yourself the question, we've solved the problem. It's five years in the future. 
the problem is solved and we were the ones that solved it. We created this new category. We're radically differentiated and the world loves it. Now look back over the last five years and ask yourself the question, what did we do to get here? This is what we call playing the breakthrough game. And the mistake that most people make is they set a big goal in the future. Okay, I want to create a category. I want to be differentiated. I want my company to do this much in revenue. I want to have these many cu customers. I want it, whatever your goals are, right? And mentally, the mental scaffolding they use, the mindset they use is, I'm. we're here standing in the present. We're looking out into the future. And we sort of say to ourselves, what are the steps we need to do to get from here to there? What category designers do, what the breakthrough game is about is we're already at the there. It all happened. As a matter of fact, it happened more in a more legendary way than even we could have imagined. It's gone incredibly. And we look back and we say, huh, let's maybe write a journal entry or a blog about how we got here. So that's one powerful exercise, because what that does is the minute you go to start to design a different future. The way the human mind works is, oh, we tried that. That doesn't work. Oh, that'll never, oh, that's too hard. That's too much money. Oh, well, fuck, you know, blah, 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 yada, yada, whatever. People immediately criticize. Uh, a little while ago, we had two guys on, on uh, Folly or Different um, who wrote a book called Two Beats Ahead. And there's a famous music school here in the United States in the Boston area called the Berkeley School of Music. And these guys are two professors there and they teach music and they teach business and entrepreneurship. The book's called Two Beats Ahead. And what they did in the book is they went and they interviewed Justin Timberlake and all these super famous, incredible, uh, incredibly talented musicians. And they, 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 they walked into their creative process and they tried to juxtapose it against what most business people do. And one of the big unlocks that came from Justin Timberlake was uh, when, when he's in the studio and they're jamming, nobody criticizes shit. Doesn't matter how much it sucks. Doesn't matter how stupid the lyric is, how bad the riff is, how bad the beat is. They're going back and forth. They're trying things. They're testing. In a lot of ways, success is about failing in the right direction. And we have to give ourselves the permission to jam and hit bad notes. Uh, my buddy Al, who wrote Play Bigger with me, uh, has gotten to know Kelly Slater, the greatest surfer in the world. And he surfed with him several times. And he said, one of the craziest things about surfing with Kelly is you see him fail because on TV in the contest, you never see him fail because when he's out surfing with his bros, uh, he's trying shit. And so in business, we don't do this. We criticize very quickly. So thinking forward leads to criticism thinking backward from the from the future that we already created changes everything there's also another thing to know about legendary entrepreneurs in a lot of ways legendary entrepreneurs and marketers for that matter are visitors from the future telling us how it's going to be mm. and if you've ever done any homework on people like sarah blakely or steve jobs or elon musk or any of these sorts of uh, legendary creators henry ford etc 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 they tend to be fairly irascible. They, they, often they're hard to be around and they're grumpy <laughs> and they're, they're, and, and part of why they're irascible is they're so living in the future that the present, that is to say the absence of the future that they think it should be already 
pisses them fucking off. <laughs> I'm raising my because I think that's me. <laughs> right. Well, that's because you're a natural category designer. Right. You're, you dedicate, whether you realize it or not, when you decided to do the entrepreneur thing you're doing and the marketing thing you're doing, you are wanting to create different futures. You're not wanting to compete for the past. Most marketing people are competing for demand that was created in the past, as opposed to creating demand into the future. And so, so um, we start in that future and work back. Uh, another practical, tactical, simple little exercise we can do, we call them uh, Frodo's for short, from twos. Once we know what the two's supposed to be, then we look at everything about the way that it currently is, that is in the way of it becoming the way we want it to be. And the from becomes the present and the two becomes the future. And you can literally map out and you could do it at a product level. You could do it feature to feature if you want. Um and, and you get very clear on what the Frodo's are. And then when you go to do marketing, you market the problem. You market the future, not the product, not the brand or company. And you create a point of view, POV for short, that articulates the Frodo. So here, I'll give you a simple example. One of our favorite entrepreneurs, one of the greatest uh, category designers of all time. And God bless him. He, he's endorsed our work. His name's Mark Benioff. He's the founder and CEO of salesforce.com. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, Salesforce just surpassed SAP for selling the most enterprise software licenses in the world. And the company's less than 25 years old. I, I think I think I saw that somewhere on LinkedIn. It, it sounds familiar now that you're saying it. Bob yeah. Evans is the guy that's really educating the world about what's happened here. So now let's think about this. When Benioff started, and I, I was around when Benioff started, so I know exactly what happened. At the time, the way software was purchased was you bought it and you installed it on, in your data center, on your computers. You ran it there. If you wanted to modify it, you modified itself. You, you modified it yourself or you hired consultants to, to do that. And then when the company comes out with a new upgrade... It's like taking a hockey puck to the nuts because it takes us six months to do the upgrade. And if you did mods, then you got to change the mod. And it's a, but this is how it works. This is the paradigm in business enterprise application software, right? With the emergence of the internet, Benioff goes, this is really dumb. Instead of buying software and paying all that money to run it internally, why not just rent it and use it over the internet? Well, that's a very radical idea at the time. Today, it sounds obvious. Back then, not obvious. As a matter of fact, back then, if you had said, hey, listen, here's what's going to happen. All the major corporations on planet Earth are going to give Mark Benioff their customer list, all their salespeople, and their forecast data, and they're going to let him run that in their servers. The answer at the time, and I know I was there, was no fucking way is that going to happen. Yeah. So what does he do? He evangelizes the problem and he creates one little symbol. It has the word software in it and then a red circle with a red line through it. And it says no software. So imagine a software company saying no software. And what he's saying is don't buy software and run it internally. Rent software over the Internet. And so and all he does, he spends 20 plus years Pounding the table. No software, no software, no software. Cloud, 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 cloud. 
And he does he talk about the product? A little bit, but not much. He evangelizes the problem. And here's a funny thing that goes on in people's minds, Winston. When you powerfully articulate a problem that I have, I assume you have the solution. So if you own the problem, you actually own the solution too. And the bigger and the more urgent and the more strategic the problem, the more time, money, and energy people will spend and invest in solving the problem. So category designers market the problem and the opportunity created by a whole new solution. And they never stop doing it. And if they do what Benioff does, they build the largest building west of the Mississippi and they buy a Hawaiian island. Now, you can't live on any of that, Winston, but it's a nice start. Well, And the, the interesting thing about that example is the principles for an individual, Joanne Molinaro, and for a uh, venture-backed mega tech company around category design are exactly the same. Let's dive into that because you just sparked my curiosity just now. What, walk us through how is it the same? Because one would probably argue that because of the size, because of you know the venture backed has more resources, so they have a lot more to spend. What you're saying in principle is pretty much the same thing. Explain to us how for a bootstrap startup is the same as a venture backed company. I love this question. Thank you. So here's the thing most marketing people will never tell you. The most effective marketing was, is, and always will be word of mouth. Period. Not fucking Super Bowl ads, not direct mailers, not Google keywords, not SEO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not email marketing, word of mouth, WOM for short. That's point A. Point B, the, the people who evangelize new categories are what are called super consumers. And super consumers, um, and my partner in Category Pirates, Eddie Yoon, wrote the first book on super consumers, are roughly 8 to 10% of any given market category. Not just your customers, but the category overall. And they're the ones that are always pushing the edge. They're the ones that are always interested in more. They're the, always the ones trying new things, doing new things, interested in new things. They're the, you know, If you're a guitar super consumer and a new kind of guitar comes out, you want to buy that guitar. Okay. So here's the unlock. Once you understand category design, word of mouth, and super consumers, you begin to realize that getting a new category to take off, aka tip, requires an actually a very small number of people. Depending on the business, it can be a few hundred people small business and even for an enterprise software company like a Salesforce it's less than 10,000 people and here's the aha and this is marketing's ultimate job and the reason you never hear much about it is agencies don't make a lot of money selling this shit so nobody talks about it here's the aha marketing's job is to put the right words in the right mouth and the right words are a point of view that evangelizes the category by focusing on the problem and the opportunity as a result, uh, essentially deputizing 
super consumers. Why? A, super consumers are the most enthusiastic. And B, they fucking talk. And if you teach them what to say, they will evangelize the category and the product for you. And so even in like in Salesforce's case, they got to get 10,000 people roughly who are highly influential on the leading edge of enterprise software to begin to start talking no software, begin to start talking cloud. And over to, and all they do is put put fuel on that fire and that takes off. Well, guess what? If I'm a new category of bakery. Oh, I'll, here's a great example. There's a new category of bakery here in the U.S. I don't know if they're in Jamaica. And they niche down radically on one product only. Bunt cake. Do you guys have bunt cakes by chance in Jamaica? <laughs> I don't think so because it doesn't sound familiar to me. <laughs> it's a circular cake. It sort of looks like a giant donut with a hole in it. it. And it has a particular look. If you Google it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So these two gals... They don't do what most people do, which is open a radically undifferentiated bakery and compete on, aren't our cakes great? Product. Well, that's a race to the bottom. What they do is they say, we are the world's first bunt cake bakery. And they tie their category and brand together. And the brand they choose is nothing bunt cake. <laughs> And they are now the largest chain of franchised bunt cake bakeries in the world. Now, there is no category that is more undifferentiated than a bakery. Yeah. But in this case, by picking a very narrow product and evangelizing why for your special occasion with your family, this year, try a bunt cake instead of a normal cake. They're doing what legendary category designers do. They're forcing a choice, not a comparison. So now you got to say to yourself, oh, well, do we want a regular cake or a bunt cake? Oh, do we want to listen to hard rock or reggae? Oh, well, if you want a bunt cake, this is the place. They're the category queen in bunt cakes. And so the point being, even in the most mature categories that seem radically undifferentiated, an entrepreneur with a non-obvious mind can find a way to radically differentiate. And then in their case, they evangelize bunt cakes because they know you have to care about what a bunt cake is and think that it's cool or want to try it long before you buy the product from the brand. Category makes the company. Category makes the brand. Category makes the product. I have to think muscle cars are cool before I start shopping for uh, 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 Mustangs and shit, right? Every money, every dollar Chrysler spends marketing minivans to me is wasted money because I'm never going to buy a minivan. But every dime Ford spends telling me about the new Mustang makes me want more Mustangs. And the reason is I think muscle cars are cool and God bless minivans, but not for me. And so they evangelize the bunt cake and most of their customers try to bunt cake for the first time at nothing bunt cake. And so this is how, and, and in a small community in a, with a local bakery in a local town, you get, you get 50 people talking about your new radically different new category of bakery. You get the right 50 super consumers talking, people who buy cake every week. 
you're going to dr- and you have a easily understandable and repeatable point of view, you're going to drive a breakthrough in WOM. And here's the other thing about WOM. Digital WOM scales in a way that analog WOM never did. Right? So this morning I logged on to LinkedIn and one of the things I saw, we just put out an episode of Folly or Different with legendary venture capitalist Mike Maples. Well, one of the things I, I saw was there were five or six people that had already started to share that podcast on LinkedIn and wrote very long write-ups about why they thought it was awesome and why you should listen to it. That's digital WOM. Now, people call that going viral, but what's really going on is if you and I are friends, and let's say you're an expert on cameras, and I'm thinking about maybe buying a new camera. Well, I can go online, I can read reviews, I can watch YouTube videos, I can do whatever I want. But the reality is I'm going to call my buddy Winston, who's a camera meister, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm thinking about buying a new camera, and you're going to tell me, and da, da, da. And the recommendation you make, I am 99% likely that I'm going to buy that camera as opposed to whatever I read online. Why? Trusted friend. Wom. It's all about driving word of mouth. And in the digital world, we can scale word of mouth in a digital community of super consumers really fast. That's excellent. And uh, here's my follow-up question to that, which I'm sure a lot of people will ask. First of all, how do you identify the super um, consumers within your category? And secondly, how do you bring them into the fray to say, hey, um, we know we have competitors out there who probably are evangelizing in their own word the same thing, but here's how you convince them to evangelize our way of thinking and our point of view. How do you do that? (laughs) Thanks for asking. So um, the first, so identifying super consumers. Uh, If you're a larger business, this is, uh, uh, in, in no small part, a, a data science, what we call category science project. So start to dig into the data about your sales, about who's buying. If you have demographic data, what do you know about them? Where are they located? You know, their age, their, you know, demographic type information. Uh, and most larger companies have reasonably good data around who their customers are. Now, here's the part that's different. And we just wrote a big piece on what we call category science and category pirates that lays all this out. Most people, when they look at data, they're looking for, quote unquote, trends. So that they can maximize the positive trends and minimize the negative trends. Okay, that's an important, smart thing for business people to do. Category designers aren't doing that. We're looking for the weird we're looking for the outliers. I'll tell you a fun story about this. My writing partner, Eddie Yoon, the genius Eddie Yoon, years ago, he, he was doing some consulting for iRobot. You know, the, the home smart vacuum runs around yeah. your house and freaks out your cat and shit. <laughs> um, and he starts looking at the data. But he's a category scientist, not the typical data wonk. So he notices that a very small percent, I forget exactly Winston, but it was single digits of their customers were buying like four, five, six, seven, eight of these things. He says, what the fuck's going on here? So Eddie himself decides 
that he's going to go call a bunch of these customers. And then he sets up a survey of these customers. Anyway, here's what he discovers in both his individual calls and in the broader survey that they do. They're gifting it. So a super consumer buys an iRobot for their house. And then, you know, maybe they have two floors. Maybe they put one upstairs and one down. So maybe they buy two for the house. Maybe if they have a bigger house, they buy three, whatever. But the unlock is they buy them for their parents. They buy them for their friends. And they're not cheap. But when you're a super consumer and you love a breakthrough exponential new category of product, you love it. When people come over to their house, they demo the iRobot. Check this thing out I just got, right? So they encourage their friends to buy it and they gift it. Okay, so where's the unlock there for driving massive growth? It's obvious, isn't it? Do a marketing program to your supers on gifting. And you can materially increase your revenue. I love that. And and the question that's coming to my mind is, I'm sure there are a lot of outliers in the data. How do you know which ones to actually pursue versus which one is just a waste of resources, budget, whatever the case may be? Is there a way to tell or you just try all of them and see which one works out? Yeah, some of it's a judgment call. Of course, a lot of it's a judgment call. And it's very hard to research a breakthrough. One of the mistakes that people make is they try to do market research to create a breakthrough product. And there is some market research that can help, but in general, it's not helpful. You know, Steve Jobs famously said, nobody knows what they want until we tell them, right? And and there's a big part of that that's right. Um, so what you're looking for in the data is, is there a small percentage of customers, consumers doing something abnormal? And what is that abnormal? Whether it's their buying lot or they keep, you know, you, you have 2% of your customers who spend money, but they keep calling support and, you know, asking these questions about all these things. And we don't know how to answer their questions because our help desk never got those questions before. Right. Well, what are they asking to do? Oh, isn't that interesting? Let me let me take it back to something you said earlier, um, which is combining the the category with the product. And I'm going to add one more thing. And this is your this is based on your model of the magic triangle. Um, so it's the category, the product, the company, right? How how can marketers really because one of the one of the biggest challenges I've found um since even doing this this podcast is marketers struggle to work cross-functionally within organizations because and I, I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism for this, but I think it's because we're too stuck in what I call the marketing bubble, which is the marketing echo chambers of everyone repeating the same thing, thinking the same way. Um, there's a there's a point of view that's made popular, especially on LinkedIn, and everyone just runs with it, even if one, it doesn't apply to them, or two, they really don't understand the context of how the point of view was developed in the first place. How can marketers really come out of that marketing bubble to using the, ma the magic triangle um, model that, that you developed to work with different functions, whether it's sales, whether it's customer success, whether it's product, whatever the case may be? Love this question. Okay, so rule number one, uh, broken mental scaffolding. 
We do not work in marketing. That's not where we fucking work. We work in the company. Our skill set is marketing. Our role is marketing. Our responsibility is marketing. We work for the same fucking company. The people who build the product over there or on the next floor, or I don't know where, are our people. So, so marketing's job is to help design a legendary category and build the category king or queen that designs uh, that dominates that category. Well, guess what? To your point, it takes legendary category, it takes legendary product, and it takes a legendary company. Company is defined by business model. Company is defined by culture, etc. There's no. Here's the other thing: the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, in my opinion, is the Chief Culture Officer, not the head of HR. Why? Because marketing is where the voice comes from. Every time I was a CMO, we jointly owned with HR internal communications. Now, to get back to product for a second, um, the relationship to have with the product folks is my job as the CMO is to make sure that your product makes the biggest difference to the most people possible. And culture-wise, we want a product organization, an engineering organization who wants to create products that sell and that customers are insanely uh, in love with. So when product and marketing get together, they have the same mission. The same mission is how do we create the most legendary, radically differentiated products in the most legendary, radically differentiated category so that we can make the biggest difference and become the category queen in our category. That's everybody's fucking job in the company. And so when we, I, I'm in product discussions all the time. When I was a CMO, one of the things that I did, I would quote unquote swap jobs with the head of engineering twice a year. And he would come and quote run marketing and I would come and quote run engineering. And then we would meet afterwards and compare notes. He'd take my calendar, I'd take his calendar. When you do things like that, not only do you as the head of marketing learn a lot and the head of engineering learn a lot, you expose your team to our head of products. They're not an alien person. They're this incredible leader executive. Vice versa, the engineers aren't going to hate the marketing guy if they know he, they're going to come and spend time. He's going to come and spend time with them a couple times a year. You learn way more and the symbolism is incredible. Because what it says to everybody is, hey, listen, in marketing, if you want to do the normal blame product shit, go fuck yourself. I'm not listening to that for five seconds. And legendary marketing leaders do exactly the same thing with sales. Everything I just said about product is exactly the same with sales. And when I was a CMO of large public companies, I would spend 40 to 50% of my time with salespeople in front of customers. My my objective was to become the most requested person in the company on a sales call, even more so than the CEO. Because mm. guess what? If you can't sell one-on-one, you can't fucking market one-to-many. Right. There's no thing as a legendary marketing person who isn't a legendary salesperson. And if you want to be in touch with the market, spend time with fucking customers. Listen to their problems, their needs, their wants, and 
when you lay down the category POV that frames the problem, that drives the Frodo's, if you can't sit there in a 45-minute meeting with a customer, this is, I'm talking about a B2B environment, this is an example, but, and have them have physical pain in their body regarding their need to buy your product as the head of marketing, you're fired. Marketers need to be legendary at sales. And exactly the same thing with product. When I was a CMO, everybody in marketing knew. You say one thing about that the salespeople are assholes and this and that and the other, you, 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 fuck, fuck you. I'll tell you a funny story about this. I hired, when I was at Mercury, I hired a new head of corporate and brand marketing. And as part of that function, she also owned our annual user conference, our customer conference. And there was a huge amount of coordination between sales and marketing. You know, imagine 10,000 people and speakers and all this stuff, right? So a huge amount of coordination between sales and marketing. She's been on the job for a few weeks and uh, she comes into my office and she says, hey, Christopher, um, I got a meeting maker from Jay, Jay Larson, who was our head of sales uh, for, for, you know, Tuesday or whatever. Um, and, and you're not on the meeting maker. What do you want me to do? And I said, what do you mean, what do I want you to do? And she says, well, you're not in the meeting and I have to go meet with one of your peers. You know, I, I, I don't want to break the chain of command. I said, break the chain of command. You're the person in charge of the customer conference. He's the executive in charge of the field. He wants to talk to you about some stuff. He decided I don't need to be there. Excellent. I don't need to be there. Go. We're all the same thing. You're not going, when you go and talk to the head of sales, you're not talking to them. You're right. talking to us. And so go understand what Jay's ideas and thoughts and questions and concerns, whatever it is, and have a great conversation with him. <laughs> I, I love the fact that you mentioned about in terms of, you know, changing roles within the company, because I, I've learned so much doing this podcast. And one of the things I realized is that people who are good marketers, have done some sort of sales in the past or even currently. And it's the same for me. Why? Because in terms of that, let's call it the customer journey, um, you know, for, for the audience, because that's the term that we're familiar with. During the customer journey, marketing is only one part of that. Sales is the second half. And then, of course, you have customer success on the back end once a person becomes a customer. And I always say that the best way for marketers to really learn how to really show and communicate their value in a way that C-suites understand and value, which is revenue, which is sales, you have to understand how the company sells. And not just theoretically, whether it's sitting in a sales car, but I would even recommend, this is something I'd recommend a lot of marketers do, go out and sell, like take 30 days out of your calendar per year at least and go and sell the product not not you sitting in a sales car but take the actual product or or the service if that's what you offer and actually get on the phone and try to sell it to people why because it will give you a lot of in terms of it give you a different perspective how to think about your marketing because you're actually in it you know the custom the questions the customers are asking in real time um, you understand certain challenges that sales endures and the gaps that exist and where can marketing actually fill those gaps to make the entire sales process a lot easier, a lot more effective and efficient for sales. And as you said, we're all a team to hit the same goal, which is to help the company grow. 
that's what I honestly believe, and I'll forever Amen. stick to that point. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And sales is the toughest job in the company. Yes. Period. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Looking somebody in the eye and asking them to buy something is a very tough thing to do. And, and marketers are divorced from that because when, as a marketer, when people will reject us, they don't look us in the face and reject us. <laughs> in sales, they hang up the phone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's a very, very tough job. One uh, other fun thing. You want to hear a quick story about this? Yes, please. So everything you just said, 100%. And there's one other piece, which is, and you might discover some dumb shit that you and your company are doing to prevent revenue. So here's a true story. Uh, my friend Rob Burgess was the chief executive officer of a publicly traded software company called Macromedia. They ultimately got acquired by Adobe. And um, uh, he noticed at a certain point in the company's development that their inside sales numbers were coming down. And he asked the executives and he asked this and that, reports and this and that. And nobody could give him the answer that he, he that he could accept. So he's like, fuck this. I'm going to go down. I'm literally going to sit there. I'm going to spend uh, a day sitting, listening, paying attention, interviewing, talking to our salespeople. I'm going to listen to them on the phone. I'm going to figure out what, like, well, I want to see what the fuck's happening. Well, here's what he discovered. Uh, a couple months prior, they had hired a new uh, legal contracts person. And that legal contracts person had implemented a new, what turned out was laborious um, credit check process. So somebody would call them up on the phone and go, yeah, I want to buy your software for 300 bucks, 500 bucks, whatever it is, right? User software, not enterprise licenses. but And, and, the, and then the next thing the sales rep would say would be great. I'm going to email you our 437-page uh, uh, credit application, and once you're approved, we'll take the sale. Rob says, new policy, no credit check. Just fucking sell it to them. Just fucking sell it to them. And if the credit <laughs> card bounces or they don't pay the bill, we'll deal with it. So what? Just fucking, we, the more people using our software, the better. Sell them the software. No credit check. Zero credit check. If the person's calling from what sounds like a legitimate organization, sell them the fucking software. <laughs> and so some companies, whether they whether they realize it or not, they they create anti-revenue, quote, best practices. <laughs> and you can't know about that unless you do exactly what you said, which is go down, sit in the chair and find out what's going on. I appreciate you you being on, on the podcast with me this long, Christopher. I'm not going to lie to you because I wasn't expecting it to go on for this long, but I, I'm I'm loving the conversation. And, and I think I'm literally going to, because typically the episodes last between, I would say, 30 to 45 minutes. Some may go to 50. But I think I, I may actually put this entire episode out. It's probably going to be an hour and a half, but I don't care because <laughs> there's there's so much good stuff here. So I'm just going to ask you one last question. Um, you know, we can dig into it and then, you know, we close out so I can let you go. But I definitely appreciate the time you spent today. I, I appreciate your time, Winston. I appreciate your work very much. It matters a lot what you're doing. Thank you. Um, all right, Christopher. So the final question that I have, and it's something that I ask more or less every guest just to get their point of view on. Um, in your opinion, what's the one skill that marketing leaders are lacking that would help them to stand out and get a seat at the, the leadership table, the C-suite table, 
to actually influence strategy and certain direction of the company? What's that one skill in your in your um, opinion? It's very clear. Category design. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a very personal story. Uh, I became a CMO of a publicly traded software company at 27, 28 years old. And then I developed a reputation for, for being pretty good at it. And people would, recruiters would call me and they'd ask me to go, you know, talk to the CEO of this incredible company because they wanted to hire me as their CMO. And from time to time, I would go on those meetings. And I'd sit there, and one of the questions I would ask the CEO is, what are you looking for in a CMO? And they would almost always give very similar answers. You know, somebody can build our brand, somebody who can do demand, somebody who can do product marketing, somebody who can do the logos and events and digital and whatever, right? All the practical, tactical, everything that you would imagine a professional CEO would ask a professional CMO to do. And then I'd say, oh, okay, great. Um, then you don't need me. And they go, what? I said, no, we can, we can end this conversation. I'll give, I'll give you, uh, you know, this is normally what happened at the beginning of the conversation. Normally conversations are an hour in business, half an hour, an hour. So we're at the 15 minute mark. And I say, I think we can save each other a whole bunch of time and you can have your 45 minutes back and I'm going to wish you well. The C CEO go, well, what? Well, why? And I'd say, well, you don't need what I do. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, all that practical tactics, I know how to do all that stuff. And more importantly, I know how to build a team that can do all that stuff. That's called keeping the trains running on time. And if what you're looking for is a great CMO who's great at keeping the trains running on time, you should go hire that person. You don't need me to do that. And then they'd say, okay, well, what do you do then? I'd say, oh, okay. Here's what I do. In the life of every company, there comes a point where there is an epic 18 to 36 month battle for who's going to win this category. I specialize in designing and winning that battle. But you, you want somebody who keeps the trains running on time. So, you know, congratulations, good luck, go with God. And I'm out of here. And they go, wait, 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 wait. What did you tell me what you just said again? I want to talk about that. And so this is called framing, naming, and claiming your area of expertise. Category design is about framing, claiming, and naming your category. And the way I distinguished myself from traditional marketers who play a game called demand capture. That's what marketing equals, demand capture. Um, I have no interest in playing that game. I know how to play that game. I can do successful things around that game, but that's not what I do. So we would get into this conversation. Well, guess what? Immediately, that CEO is no longer comparing me to any other candidate. Now they have... In poker, it's called putting them on a decision. I'm forcing a choice, not a comparison. You either want to hire a traditional good operating marketing executive, which is totally valid, or you want to hire a category designer. They're different things. 
So if you don't want to have a category design discussion, if you want to have a how to compete and capture demand discussion, you should go talk to the people who specialize in that. I have no interest in that. Well, guess what? Now they have physical pain in their body regarding their need to hire me. And guess what the comp package looks like? It's 2x a traditional CMO package. Mm. And so that is the skill because it's one thing to compete for demand, it's a whole other thing to be able to create it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have demand uh, 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 capture skills. You should. But nobody asks the question, what makes people Google something? The question they ask is, how do we capture everybody who's Googling something? And they ever say, well, somebody, there's a reason they typed in the fucking word. What's the reason they typed in the word? Oh, somebody educated them. Somebody moved their thinking from an old way to a new way. And once they began, once they had an aha around that new way, that's when they Google it. And guess what? The company that created that new way, the company that educates them or the person who educates them on the new way. If you're the one who tells me about my problem, my opportunity in a unique and differentiated way, I assume you have the answer. Bob Marley's the first reggae musician most people outside of Jamaica and the islands ever heard of. So is he the greatest reggae musician of all time? I don't know. Maybe Peter Tosh wants to argue about it, but it doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> yeah. You follow me? And so, um, that's the way you, A, radically differentiate yourself as a marketer and completely stand out. And B, category design is the most powerful underground skill in business. Elon Musk is a category designer. Sarah Blakely is a category designer. Henry Ford was a category designer. Steve Jobs was a category designer, not a traditional marketer. And in most of the cases I just mentioned, they did legendary marketing. However, their legendary marketing was all about different, not better. Almost all marketers are having a better comp uh, conversation. Christopher, let me let me stop and actually play devil's advocate for for a second. By because all means. there are people who would say, "Well, there is merit in actually comparing your brand to the other person's brand and showing how you're you're actually better than them in terms of whether it's solving a problem, whether it's a product itself, whatever it is that you're comparing. And it has worked for, and it, I'm sure they can give you examples of other brands who has, um, that it has worked for in the past. So what, what's your argument to that? It never works. That's a myth. Here's why. Um, the category king never does this because if you're the leader, you don't need to compare yourself to anybody. You're the leader. So the only companies that do this are not the leader. So when you do this, whether you realize it or not, the consumer, the customer says, oh, they're comparing themselves to Coke. Coke must be the leaner. There's an idiot technology company called Werby. And they're a competitor to Zoom. And they did this massive campaign. They did billboards. They have a billboard. I can send it to you. They have a billboard that says, the New York Times says we're better at meetings than Zoom. 
Zoom's leader, clearly. And here's the other interesting psychological take. When you evangelize the category, Bob Marley, reggae is this incredible music, it's different, it has all these elements, you know, all the things, right? As opposed to saying, you should stop listening to hard rock and start listening to reggae, because hard rock sucks, right? So, when you evangelize the category, the problem and the opportunity, see, categories are about customers, their problems, their opportunities, new ways for them to think and approach life and work and play. When you're the person evangelizing that, people assume you're the leaner. They give it to you. The category makes the brand. By evangelizing the category, they assume, they grant you the number one brand position. Now, here's what category designers will do from a competitive point of view. So most people think there's demand capture, which is what 90 plus percent of marketing is. And then they think there's demand creation. Well, there's a third piece to this. Why are you smiling? <laughs> uh, that we're, we're going to get into that conversation, um, that debate around demand capture versus demand creation. But go ahead. Okay, well, there, it turns out there's a third option. And this is one that almost nobody knows. It's called dam the demand. Like, like damming a river. And how you damn the demand is you have a category to category conversation, not a product brand feature to feature conversation. And the way damn the demand goes is you interrupt the flow of the demand and you say, you thought you wanted that, but what you really need is one of these. And all of a sudden you interrupt the flow of the buying journey and you introduce a whole new idea. So, um, simple example, Peloton did not compete with gyms and spinning bikes. It's not what they did. They didn't say our bikes better. They didn't say any of that shit. They didn't say our bikes faster. Our bike requires less maintenance. Our seats better. They didn't say any of that. They said, you could drive to the fucking gym and try to find a parking spot and go into a room with a bunch of sweaty assholes and have some idiot barking at you uh, and, and, and then get out and not be able to shower and have to get in your car wet and come home. Or you could work out at home. Netflix, same thing. They didn't compete with Blockbuster. They just said, well, you could go to the store or you could go to a website and it'll come to you. You decide. Damn the demand. And when you damn the demand, the competition is literally fucked. Because here's what happens. When um, Netflix starts, they now put Blockbuster in a hole, which is Blockbuster can either stay where they are in the analog world, or they can launch a competitor. The minute they launch a competitor, they've just told the world that Netflix is the leader. And so one of the most savvy things you can do is figure out your radical differentiation and category design and do some full-blown market education, creation of demand, and at least 50% of what you want to do 
is damn the demand. Awesome. Uh, Christopher, this, this has been truly, truly, truly enlightening for me, not just for the audience, I'm sure. Uh, is there anything else that you can, you know, let's, let's close it out in terms of the whole idea of the podcast as, as you and I started out this conversation is around how do we educate marketers to really prove their value at a C-suite level? Is there any closing thoughts that you can leave us with something, you know, probably a question I didn't ask, probably something that you didn't talk about that, you know, you could probably share with us in closing? Yes. So context is everything. And so the context of the question, how do we prove our value, is a context, and I say this with tremendous love, Winston, that I reject. I ain't proving shit. You know what I'm doing? Delivering massive exponential value. And it will be obvious. And when I'm a CMO, or today, uh, mostly I write and, and podcast today. I'm mostly sort of retired from real work. But I do still advise a few companies every year. And they're going to feel my value in the first fucking meeting. And so um, don't worry about proving your value. Be radically valuable. And then other people will say, we couldn't live without these folks in marketing. I mean, this is incredible what they've done. So don't worry about proving shit. Worry about creating massive value as defined by uh, designing and dominating a category. And it, if you do that, you're not going to have to prove shit. So look, I know that's a bit of a flippant answer. Um, and there are metrics that matter. So I don't want to be ridiculous. And, you know, uh, all, all those kinds of metrics matter, whether it's, um, uh, you know, how well known we are in the digital world and the impressions and measuring marketing signal is really important today and marketing signal and how that turns into top of funnel and how top of funnel turns into sales. And look, all those things are important to measure and we want to be radically transparent as marketing leaders. So there's no piece of data. There's no reporting. There's no information. There's no planning. There's no nothing that anybody in the whole company can't see, right? So I'm not playing hide anything, right? And I'm total as a marketing leader, totally open about our plan, our budget, what we're doing, to do, what the mix is, and why. And if anybody wants to talk about it, great. I'm not, you know, don't be one of those idiots, and 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 decide together as an executive team what are the critical metrics that you want to measure. And, and how we want to, what are the things we're going to do to move in the right direction? So I'm not suggesting that that's not what is important. It is. We should do that. But the mindset is we're not doing that to prove shit or to demonstrate shit. We're doing that because we're good leaders and there's some metrics that matter that we as marketers are trying to drive so that we can help our company design and dominate a giant category that matters. But the, the place from which I come, the mindset isn't I need to prove anything to anybody. And, you know, I get into these conversations to this day when people say, ah, oh, category design is bullshit. It's all about having the best product. They do. I, I have this conversation online all the time. Product or brand, right? So there's the product cult or there's the brand cult. Right. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> have you ever tried to change a cult member's mind? 
Yeah, very difficult. It's impossible, I should say. Right. So when somebody comes at me and goes, oh, it's not bullshit. It's all about, it's all about doing a lean startup and product market fit and all these terrible ideas, right? I go, hey, great. Please tell everybody that. Write about that, blog about that, YouTube about that. Frankly, I'll, I'll, I'll retweet it. You write a blog about why marketing is bullshit, why category design is a dumb idea, and why you should just focus on building a great product and everything will work out. You go write that. I'll retweet it for you and tell everybody, hey, read this. It's awesome. Because the reality is the more of those morons there are, the easier they are to beat. A mediocre category designer will crush a traditional marketer every single time. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Christopher Lockhead, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Christopher, it was uh this was a great conversation. I mean, I I I, I wish I could continue, but um Yeah, I, I gotta go now too. <laughs> yeah, I I don't want to stress this out too much, but thank you so much for coming on. Um if people need to reach you, where where can they connect with you? Uh, the simplest thing they can do is just go to lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D, and uh, everything else hangs off of there. Awesome. Christopher, thanks again for coming on. And this has been another episode of Revenue Alignment Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Christopher, take care and all the best. This has been the Revenue Alignment Podcast. Join us next week where we have more opportunities and content to help you demonstrate, communicate, and prove your value at the C-suite level. I'm Winston, your host, and this is a wrap.